Welcome to Sheffy's Sandbox. This is a special Election Day Eve podcast uh, where I interview Elliot Sherman. It's a fantastic conversation, and I think I have finally worked out some of the uh, recording uh, problems that I was having before. I've worked with different formats, different places to um, different microphones, different ways of positioning the microphone. And even with Mercury in retrograde, I feel like we have a very smooth, um, glitch-free episode to present to you finally. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Thanks for joining me in Sheffy's Sandbox. I'm April D. Scheffler, and I invite you to play with me and my guest today, Elliot Sherman. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, thanks for having me, April. Well, I think every good uh, meeting starts off with a beverage. So in this segment, we grab coffee. We <laughs> pop into a virtual coffee house before hitting the beach. And because it's a virtual coffee house, it has anything you want. What would be the order you give the barista? Uh, I'll probably go for a chai tea this morning. Okay. Well, I'm not, now- much, of, not, not much of a coffee drinker. No, well, that's fine. Sometimes a uh, tea is good. And you said chai? Yes. Well, now that you have your uh, refreshing beverage, let's dive right in. Uh, on this podcast, we allow you to shine brightly. As Marianne Williamson said, your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. Um, so as you play big, Elliot, um, are there any claims to fame, times people may have seen you or your work? And I guess you could admit the whole part about uh, you're, you're running for Congress because we are <laughs> definitely going to be covering that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's probably what's gotten my uh, name and face out there the most. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm from the uh, Houston area. And, uh, you know, have a lot of ties here and grew up in and around and uh, got two degrees at the University of Houston. So uh, if you have ever seen someone uh, going absolutely crazy and having an awesome time at a University of Houston football game, uh, that might be <laughs> an example where you've seen me. Um, I also uh, like to volunteer around town as well. Um, the uh, Houston Food Bank is, is, uh, has received much of the focus of my efforts over this uh, summer, especially with so many people losing their jobs. So um, I've, uh, I don't know that I might have been recognized there because I've been wearing masks, but uh, <laughs> I've, I've definitely been, been uh, spotted there several times. Well, in this segment we call a linguistic tag, um, guests are asked to choose a word or phrase that they would like to hear used more often in everyday conversation. Something that doesn't get enough play, enough airtime, and the prior guest chose dramaturgy, which is a sociological concept developed by uh, Irving Goffman that uses the metaphor of theater to explain human behavior. So um, unless you've already had some familiarity with that concept, it may be kind of difficult to incorporate that, but just give, take a stab at it. You are tasked to try and somehow fit that into our conversation today. Okay, okay? I will, uh, <laughs> that, that seed has been planted. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, now you also get to choose a word for our next guest to dance with, and it could be a peculiar word that you find funny or something that just resonates with you. So what are you laying down for them to pick up? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think that I'm going to go with uh, decentralization. Okay, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but did you wanna um, add anything? Uh, sure, just the uh, and most of the concept of what we do as uh, as libertarians. That's the party I'm running with. Uh, we, we like to focus on ways that people can uh, they can solve problems, and we're not saying that you know if you vote for us, your problems will all go away. Uh, we just like to say that if if you can uh, decentralize a lot of things, uh, you can have a, a more diverse approach to problem solving. Like it. So de decentralization. Well, I think in a large part, um, we have an article in the Houston Press to thank for this particular um, podcast interview. Uh, so uh, the article had stated regarding voting third party, quote, 
It's the political equivalent of sending thoughts and prayers in a time of crisis. The act is mostly performative, self-serving, and an empty gesture that doesn't aid anyone, end quote. So in my past, um, I think this would have really resonated with me. And I think that's why I picked up on this um, because sometimes when things don't, you don't even, you know, even if something is said or you see something, you don't even acknowledge it because it's not on your radar. But I think why I paid attention to this is because this echoed uh, how I felt in uh, my past. And I was like, you know what, I want to give uh, people the other side of this and permission to vote their conscience. So I wanted to, uh, I guess, again, you know, thank the author of that article, um, because I think it's going to act as a springboard for us to discuss uh, that with people. Um, because I think I felt like that kind of shamed and belittled a person's voice and vote. And I'm eager to have your take on this, but I have found that when you vote for one of the two major parties, that person on the other side of the aisle will think you're stupid, right? But when you vote third party, all of a sudden you're labeled dangerous or irresponsible. So uh, my question to you is, why do you think that is? Well, or do whether you agree it, to that? <laughs> uh, well, I would certainly disagree with that uh, initial statement that you read in the uh, in the press. Um, the whether or not the uh, the person who said it intended it as such, uh, that whole mentality is is essentially a tactic used to discourage people from uh, voicing any dissent to the status quo. And it's um, honestly the same argument could be applied to anyone who votes for a major party that ends up losing an election because what they wanted to happen ultimately doesn't matter because they lost. So um, if, if you're just going to disenfranchise the, uh, you know, 80% of America that didn't vote in the way of the, uh, the winning party's uh, candidate, then that's, that's kind of a silly premise to begin with. Um, you know, uh, it's, if we were just, uh, as, as third party voters, and, and, and for my case, uh, candidates, we're not doing this just because we uh, want to be ineffectual. We're doing this because we want to grow something that is a long-term plan and sustainable. And everyone says, win local elections before you, you know, put up a, uh, a presidential candidate or something like that. So what we try to do is say, okay, we're going to run people as, in as many races as we can field, and we're going to try to make a long, you know, we're, we have a roadmap to success. And that roadmap doesn't start with one elections, everyone suddenly magically voting third party. It starts with, you know, us running campaigns that we aren't going to win and getting more and more percentages each, to each go around because our message resonates with people. And uh, you know, it's a building process. Um, in, in the last uh, uh, five elections, uh, the Libertarian Party has increased almost a thousand percent in terms of in terms of voting support, and that's that's real tangible growth. Uh, that is, um, if you know we continue on this trajectory, we're going to hit that tipping point where people stop wondering whether or not it's a wasted vote and say, you know what, that's what I actually want. I'll go ahead and vote for it. Uh, so that that's the kind of thing that we are working towards, and. Um, I, I do understand that people feel threatened when they feel like one voice of opposition on the ballot is, is enough and they don't want another one. And uh, what I really like to uh, point out is that if you're worried about the outcome of how, how an election is going to go, or you're angry about the possible outcome of it, that means the government has entirely too much control over your daily life. Um, in, in my in ideal vision, uh, if you know a libertarian would win uh, major elections, then uh, then it would be as it's newsworthy as maybe a, a big company getting a new CEO to you. If you care, you can be involved. You can um, show your support towards that uh, company. Or if you don't care, you can shrug your shoulders and go about your day. So we, we, we're all about having, you know, minimalizing the impact, uh, especially the negative impact that uh, the government uh, has on people's lives. I think that pretty much answers the second question I was going to have is even though libertarians may not win, why vote for them? So um, is it to ensure uh, third party candidates a place on ballots and on debate platforms? 
Well, that, that's, that's another good point. Um, unlike the Republicans and Democrats, we don't get to just waltz into the ballot. Uh, they make rules that uh, serve to dissuade or discourage us or even outright prevent us from even having a candidate on the ballot um, in you know, various states. Uh, so yes, absolutely. The more support we get, the more uh, legitimate we as a as a solid party are, and the harder it is for the uh, those two those two other older parties to uh, prevent us from being on on the ballot. Um, and this isn't this isn't some accidental thing where they're saying, oh, we're not really legitimate enough, so we don't deserve to be on the ballot. Uh, just this year in Texas, uh, 44 libertarian candidates were sued by the Texas Republicans to just boot us off of the ballot because they didn't want to. Uh, want us to you know compete against them these um there were 88 total uh, libertarian candidates uh, this year that texas fielded but the republicans only chose uh to target libertarians and races that it was that there was uh, uh, essentially a republican who could they felt could lose votes so in several races that were uncontested against democrats they didn't sue those guys so that really shows you that it's it's more about um you know partisan power preservation than any any kind of legitimate um you know any, any kind of legitimate excuse to keep the ballots easy and simple for people to understand so it's um you know it, to, to to drop your word in there it's it's political uh, dramaturgy <laughs> <laughs> very good yeah and so one of the things um sorry i'm feeling a little under the weather today but um like in like uh, televised debates and things like that. Um, what is the criteria for whether or not they invite a candidate uh, to debate uh, publicly? Uh, well, let's start with the presidential debate because that's going to be what most people are familiar with. Um, Ross Perot was the last third party candidate to appear in a presidential debate. And this is by design. He took a large chunk of votes that they assumed were theirs because people didn't like either the Republican or the Democrat. So um, once that happened, the Republicans and Democrats uh, colluded together to make their own debate commission, which they would only allow Republicans and Democrats to. And as a way to get around uh, saying, you know, which, uh, you know, that, that it's illegitimate, they created uh, polling requirements for other parties to be able to participate. Now, the thing is, they get to pick which polls uh, they, uh, they sample uh, to justify other party inclusion. And uh, just this year, uh, they chose five polls that didn't even list uh, the Libertarian Party candidate, Joe Jorgensen, on them. So when people are polled and they say, are you voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? And if you're a Libertarian or even considering it, you, you don't have the option to say that. So the polls that they're pulling from are totally bogus. The percentages that they, that they require, as soon as we'll hit them, they'll just bump them up to a higher threshold. So it's really just designed illegitimately to, uh, to keep competition out of their way. And it seems to me that um, whenever, if you were to tell someone that you're voting libertarian, they will be like, um, I get that, however, this election is so important. And it seems to me like, right, every election is like the election where, you know, you can't, you can't take away votes from, you know, one of the major two parties mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it's life and death situation. And it seems like every election, that's the case. And so if you go with that, there really is no time to vote your conscience or, uh, if, if it is libertarian um, or something, you know, third party, because every time it's going to be, you know, there's this drama, um, like the, uh, the losing side is going to like, you know, end of the world type scenario. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I really resonate with that. Like we are building, like people ask, you know, why, would someone vote libertarian? And it could be because, uh, like you, you use the word building, you know, sure. I mean, it's not very likely that uh, libertarians would win this year, but- uh, Actually, when, on the contrary, there are some seriously competitive races uh, that we can touch on in a bit. I didn't mean to interrupt Yeah, you. okay. But maybe like, at least presidentially. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not very likely um, if you're, if you're going by, uh, yard signs anyway, <laughs> in my neighborhood. Um, 
So, but I, you know, if, as long as you start to vote what you really think today, right, then it's going to slowly build as other people, as it becomes not so marginalized and it does become more mainstream. Um, because there's going to be a tomorrow and the day after, you know, there's going to be an election day and the sun is still going to rise the next day and we're going to have to live with choices. And, you know, it's going to start building up to the next, you know, four year election vote where, oh my gosh, it's, you know, every vote counts unless you're not voting for <laughs> the party I want you to vote for. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, ultimately it's, it's kind of a misguided, not information-based argument. Um, if you look at the 2016 elections, over 40% of registered voters didn't even show up on election day. So and you've, you've got a massive chunk of the population that has gone through the effort to already get registered to vote, jump through all those hoops, and then they just said, nah, I don't, I, I'm sitting this one out. So blaming, uh, you know, a Republican or a Democrat loss on a party that gets, you know, 4% of an election. And that's, you know, that's maybe a realistic number. We're, we're hoping to get over five this year uh, with, with Jorgensen, but um, blaming, blaming us for the, you know, for having conviction, showing up and voting and your candidate not winning because it, your candidate was so noxious that you repelled 40% of the population to just not show up. Uh, that's that's just misplaced. It's um, hyper partisans tend to have a problem where they are really terrible about uh, about taking a critical look at themselves and the shortcomings of some of the candidates that they put forth. Um, I like to tell people whenever they're uh, really kind of being uh, a bully about uh, about my voter choices, I'll say, hey, if you if you nominate a good candidate, I have no reason to vote libertarian. So <laughs> that's, uh, you know, at a certain point, uh, there, there's some responsibility that falls on them for the kind of uh, politicians that they select and, you know, the, the policies that they support. Right. Yeah, because I was looking at uh, <clears throat> my ballot, my sample ballot, and, you know, a lot of these uh, people that you're voting for, sometimes, uh, uh, like how they feel on gun control or abortion or immigration, really has nothing to do with their role, right? Mm -hmm. um, but people are going to vote for them regardless of whether they're most qualified or not simply because of their party affiliation. And I think that that's, um, I think well, it, we can do better. There's a lot of tribalism involved in uh, political parties. Uh, you know, people buy flags, they buy shirts, they, um, it becomes part of their identity. And whenever you challenge, uh, you know, bad ideas that their party might represent, they feel personally attacked. Like you are saying that what they have chosen is bad and wrong and you are their enemy. And it's such a bad approach when it comes to uh, developing public policy. Uh, for me, it's always an objective. What are the issues? Where are they gonna stand? How are they going to represent? Is this person trustworthy? Not like, I, I will evaluate individual candidates and I'll vote for someone over someone in my own party if they're a better candidate and they're better on issues. And um, I, I wish more people had an objective approach to it. Within the Libertarian Party, we actually have a mechanism uh, during our nomination processes uh, called NODA, which stands for none of the above. And if there's a bad candidate running and we don't want them to represent us, we'll just not field someone. And we'd, wow. rather, do, we'd rather do that <laughs> mm -hmm. than have someone we don't like representing us and making us all look bad. You know, we're all about PR as well as strategy. And you, <laughs> some, there are some bad candidates and anyone off the street can decide to run, but uh, the nomination is something that is a responsibility of the party. So if we nominate someone who is not good, then that's on us. And um, that, that's something that uh, a lot of people don't understand. Uh, you know, when they vote in the Republican and Democratic primaries, they are selecting who they want to represent their party. and if they're more focused on who they think can win than who uh, would represent them well, then they're only damaging their own brand even further. Well, one of the things, uh, one of the qualities that I like in, in people is the ability uh, to change their minds. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, you were talking about that rigidity of a, you know, a party affiliation. And if someone were to change their mind, then that means like, wow, I've been wrong all these years when, no, I mean, you haven't been wrong. You've been voting how you've, you, you've voted your conscience. But if the, you know, if your 
attitude or your beliefs change or you have more information with which to make a decision, I think that that is the most healthy thing to do is to evolve with that uh, uh, changing um, attitude and uh, and change your opinion. Doesn't mean you were wrong yesterday, uh, but I think if you do feel a certain way, but you're not holding to the integrity of that, then I think, you know, if we are going to label something right or wrong, I think that would be the more wrong of the, of the two. Well, I mean, I, I don't even need, need uh, I don't think that anyone necessarily needs to say that they were wrong in the past. It was just a decision that they reached based on the information that they, that they incorporated it at the time. Um, you can compare it to something like buying cereal. Let's say you've, you've uh, bought Cheerios for the last 10 years of your life. And one day there's a sale on, uh, on Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And you're like, you know what, I'll try it this time. And it's so good. You're not going to say, man, I was an idiot for eating Cheerios. You're going to say, man, I'm glad I found something that I really like better. And that's, uh, I think that's a lot better way to, uh, to, to have an approach to it because voting is a preference. It's not an identity. You're saying, this is, this is what I want to happen. And that's another thing that I like to um, say because, you know, on the, on the theme of, uh, of, of, third, of third party being a wasted vote, a lot of people say you can't win, why vote for it? And I like to tell people, you know, this isn't a horse race. We're not betting to see who wins. We are trying to express our preference for what we want as an outcome. And the more we do that, the more our vote totals grow, the more our percentages grow, the more people realize that this is something that they can help make happen if they finally vote the way that they were worried about voting before. So right now we are grinding. <laughs> we are pushing, uh, pushing the needle to, the, to that tipping point where once we have enough um, early adopters is, is uh, a way you can think about it. Um, the, you know, the product of libertarianism or, or even uh, other third parties, depending on what your preference is, that becomes more palatable because people say, or you know, there, there have been polls that show over 70% of Americans want a third party option. But when you have, uh, when you have voter turnout in such a way that it does that they vote for the, the red and the blue, they're saying, I wish there was something better, but I don't want what I want least to win. And mm -hmm. fear, fear is such a bad motivator uh, for how you vote. It's, it, it, it's the most easy thing to manipulate in people. And once you understand that it's going to be bad unless we all kind of do something better, that's, that's, that's where the, the aha moment happens. Well, let's get into what a libertarian is. Um, one of my friends mistook the term third party to mean an independent write-in candidate, someone who just puts themselves on the ballot. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes Republicans, if they're not familiar with what a libertarian is, they just hear it's another L word, like liberal. <laughs> uh, and then for others, it could bring to mind the Johnny Depp movie, The Libertine, in which debauchery brings the main character to an early grave. So yeah, none of those. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say none of those. We have plenty of libertine libertarians and plenty of liberal libertarians. Um, the, the great thing about uh, being able to uh, you know, live your life the way you want so long as you're not harming other people is that you can do, you can live your life however you want. Um, that's, uh, you know, the, the most hardcore uh, social conservative, uh, you know, evangelical Republican can live right next door to the most wild hippie <laughs> liberal they want. And as long as they're not hurting each other or, or their property, they can coexist under, under the whole idea of liberty. You don't have one, you know, one trying to impose their rules about drugs or sex on the other, and you don't have one trying to impose their rules about, about gun restrictions or, or excessive taxation on the other. They can just be neighbors, and it's okay that they're not the same. So, um, yeah, yeah, what uh, are some of the major uh, libertarian <laughs> platform points? Uh, that, so uh, one thing that is first and foremost is we don't just kind of pick and choose platform pieces uh, based on what's popular. We have a consistent principled approach, which is totally different from the Republicans and Democrats. And it's, it's a lot of reason they don't really understand us. So the basis of all of that is respect, respect for individual consent. And I wanna let that sink in for a little bit because it's gonna be a recurring theme here as I go through some of the platform issues. Um, what that means is nobody has a right to tell you what to do with your body or the fruit of your labor. And that is powerful. 
uh, again, so long as you're not hurting anyone else or restricting their ability to live the way they want, you should be able to live the way you want. So when it comes to things like taxes, we want them lower. When it comes to things like government restrictions to, to drugs, to gambling, to sex work, uh, we, we don't want that in the way as long as everyone's a consenting adult. Uh, we don't want barriers to um, immigration. Like we want people to just move and moving isn't, shouldn't be a crime. Uh, we, we want uh, to make sure that we have uh, just treatment towards racial and uh, gender and sexual minorities. Like there's, there's no reason that the government should have laws that allow people to discriminate uh, against them, especially if they're government employees. Um, you know, you can think a couple years back, the, uh, I think there was a, a woman in the Midwest who refused to grant a marriage license uh, to a same-sex couple. And she was, uh, it became kind of this lightning rod of controversy. And it's like, no, 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 you work for the government. You shouldn't be telling people what they can't do if what they're doing is based on love and happiness. It's, it's just kind of ridiculous. Uh, like I, I did kind of touch on this earlier, we do uh, defend gun rights because we think that, you know, so the ability to defend yourself is an inherent right and uh, punishing innocent people with restrictions as a way to solve a problem for people who are not innocent. It just, it's just focusing on the wrong, uh, punishing the wrong group. Um, we uh, believe that uh, we could have a lot more affordable health care if we just got uh, government out of the way. Um, I, I like to use this example. In India, you can buy an insulin pen for about $11. And in the United States, it'll cost you $120 for an insulin pen. And if the government weren't prohibiting you from being able to buy insulin from India, you could just go on Amazon and order some for $11 instead. And, and you know, th those kind of things, like that's, that's over 10 times difference in price. And that's all just because of government protectionism. Um, so really, we want we understand that society has issues and problems and we believe that the best way to solve those problems is um, by doing so in a more local way in ways that affect your community and like if if you um th think about the bystander effect um if you if, if there's a wreck and someone just shouts call call 911 most people are going to be kind of dumbfounded looking at it but the way to effectively get someone to call 911 is to point at someone and say you call 911 that way so that way action is taken and people aren't assuming that someone else is going to cover it for them. And that same issue is, you know, when the government is supposedly helping people with welfare programs and uh, housing assistance, all this, people tend to think, okay, well, the government's got it. And if it's not good enough with the government, we just need the government to do it more rather than saying, you know, we need to step up and help our own communities. We need to donate to local charities. We need to volunteer. Uh, we need to help people, uh, you know, when they're in need. And it's, it's all about doing things and solving problems on a much more voluntary basis. Right. I agree. <clears throat> I think uh, a lot of people, uh, because they have they are being taxed so much and the, there's a, a, a large welfare system um and, and i guess i should uh, i feel like compelled to say that i my family benefited from welfare i was one of those children that benefited from uh, a government uh, that stepped in and made sure we had enough to eat and provided us housing um but you know i'm thinking you know when i'm asked about that it is a kind of like a conflict um but I feel like sometimes if the government weren't involved, that um, the local church and community groups, you know, even non-religious community action groups would have stepped in. I, I believe that about people, you know, would have stepped in to, uh, to help, um, you know, but there's no guarantee. But again, there's no guarantee with the government either. But I know a lot of people who, uh, are not very eager to donate towards uh, programs and uh, nonprofits because they feel overtaxed already, overburdened, mm -hmm. saying, I'm already paying, you know, I'm already working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week to pay for someone to sit at home, you know, yeah. and not collect a paycheck. And that, and that breeds kind of undue resentment. Um, it's not the person who is, you know, receiving government helps fault necessarily. I and mean, sometimes circumstances happen that individuals can't control, no matter how much preparation you do or, or how, how much, uh, how many steps you take to, you know, to ward off calamity. I'm, bad things do happen to people. Sometimes there are unforeseen 
you know, medical issues that could not have been prevented that, you know, like cancer or something like that. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, the economy can wipe out your job or in this year, the government can just declare your job to be non-essential and then you can go and lose everything that you had that you were working. Mm -hmm. So um, I really don't like the idea of blaming uh, recipients uh, for receiving government assistance. I, I think that, uh, you know, we as a society, we spend, depending on how much you make, anywhere from a third to a half of what we make on taxes. And I'm not talking about just income taxes. We've got property taxes, sales taxes, excise taxes, the tariffs in this trade war against China that's going on right now are taxes. All it does is add government receipt, you know, received money to the cost of things that we import. And when you add it up, all, all the uh, federal, state, and local taxes, you're, you know, average Americans are paying between a third and a half of what they earn just to, the, to various governments. Can you imagine how much good could be done with people uh, who had all of that money and they could decide, you know, back under their own control and they could decide to spend it on what they prioritize? Um, so uh, one thing that I really like to point out is wh whenever libertarians talk about cutting spending, um, the, the vast majority of us kind of view things from a, a mor morality scale, whereas this... Uh, you know, this government action is helping people who really need it. This government action is actively hurting people. And when we talk about cuts, we talk about cutting from the actively hurting end of that scale first. That's, um, that's, that's where I think the most good can be done. Um, for example, uh, right now, or for the last, uh, the current and former two uh, presidential administrations, we have been drone bombing the Middle East and killing innocent civilians in, in the tens of thousands. And that's, actual murder that our government is committing with our tax dollars. And it's, it's so morally objectionable, but most people can't even have a conversation about reducing spending in that area because uh, you know, the demagogues will say, oh, you're just targeting, or you're just, you just don't support the troops or you don't support freedom. And it's-, it's Yeah, you're, very, you're labeled very unpatriotic all of a sudden. <laughs> exactly, and, and it's, our government is spending our money to kill innocent people. That's the bottom line. And we are, there's no, we, the United States hasn't uh, declared a war since, uh, since World War II. So it's been 70 years, or I'm sorry, 80 years now at this point, uh, since our government has declared war, but we've been in nearly constant conflict uh, for our, for the majority of our entire lives. And it's, that's, that's a huge place where we spend trillions of dollars year over year. And it's, it's just a black hole of, of death and wasted money and not to mention all of the American soldiers we do support who are having their not lives needlessly threatened or damaged or, you know, many soldiers come back home with, uh, with PTSD and have to deal with that and have uh, a, a higher suicide rate than the civilian population of almost double. Uh, these are serious issues that libertarian solutions would be, hey, I don't know, let's use the, our, let's use our uh, national defense on actually defending America instead of, you know, creating all of this conflict around the world. All right, Elliot. <clears throat> Hold on. So Elliot, let's talk about the porcupine. Um, <laughs> that is our, <laughs> that is, uh, so if I haven't uh, already kind of blown the whistle, I'm, I'm a libertarian myself. <laughs> and uh, so I identify with the, the porcupine. Um, and, and like you said, unless something changes or there's a more qualified candidate, then I'm more than willing to change my mind and my vote. Um, but I feel like the Libertarian Party more closely aligns with my own values. Um, I, so uh, let's talk about the porcupine. I think it's kind of a, a cool little mascot. Yeah, so the, the whole concept there is that Libertarians uh, don't believe in initiating aggression. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the, our bread and butter for how our approach is to solving problems. And if you are starting a conflict, you're in the wrong. And um, that, uh, that, that kind of applies or is embodied by a porcupine, where they are a very defensively oriented animal. They, uh, you know, they can ward off attacks from lions. They, <laughs> you know, and you think, you know, this small mammal isn't really capable, but it's got all these defensive spines on it. So whenever uh, a larger predator or something comes after it, it has the ability to just kind of hunker down and defend itself. And otherwise it's just a peaceful, uh, you know, peaceful animal that's making its way through the world. Uh, it, it's a really, uh, it's a really 
clever uh, selection. You know, you've got the uh, the the elephants and the Republicans who stomp around and have no idea what they're doing. Uh, you've got the the jackasses and the Democrats, and I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that one as is. Um, but yeah, I, I like that we have the uh, the porcupine as our mascot for that reason. Always wondered about the the donkey. Why why would do you have any idea? Why I haven't Googled it to see. I haven't Googled it either. Um, I, I would just say stubbornness is the most prominent feature of, of a donkey. So, you know, maybe that. I don't know. It's uh, it's. It, maybe or, they were digging in their heels on an issue and they decided to. <laughs> I, 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 don't I don't know. know. You think that they would uh, select a mascot that were a little more uh, complimentary to their causes, but. Maybe they can address that in their next um, <laughs> caucus or something. All right, let's go to some Facebook questions. Um, okay. Becca Congdon, she asked, how would a libertarian in government deal with climate change? Does government need to play a role? Yeah, so that's, that is uh, something that most libertarians probably don't want to be asked, but this is something I don't have any, I don't have any uh, problem dealing with. Um, so one thing, climate change is real, and um, it, that shouldn't be a, a controversial point of uh, discussion. There's, we've, we've got a lot of scientific data that shows it. Um, that doesn't uh, necessarily mean that you, the individual American hearing this response right now are personally responsible and you need to change your entire life. What it does mean is that you should probably make uh, better decisions uh, so that you, your impact to, uh, to, the th to the contributing factors of climate change are minimalized. Um, now, the whole idea of having the government deal with it, it it's kind of uh, frustrating from a logistical standpoint because the United States military is the single largest polluter on the entire planet. Like if you're talking about, if you're ranking organizations, the US military is the largest polluter. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's really frustrating to say, hey, I know that uh, the US government makes a lot of messes, but it should also be responsible for telling us how to clean them up. And that, you know, that, that, that rubs me the wrong way. Um, I think that the uh, best approach to dealing with pollution in general, and we can talk about contributing factors to climate change, is by holding, um, you know, by holding polluters uh, accountable. So when you have giant organizations like that or giant corporations who are actively polluting, there should not be a limit on liability for people who are harmed by that pollution to be able to seek restitution. And the current corporate model in the United States of America gives uh, liability ceilings on companies and almost complete liability protection for the government uh, from civil cases. So if the government's polluting or if a company is polluting, there is a cap by, you know, after which they're no longer responsible for it. And that kind of creates um, almost a monetary incentive to figure out if we can make more money polluting, then it will cost us in that cap, then it's a business decision to go ahead and pollute. And that is such a bad incentive. Uh, so letting the courts work, allowing class action lawsuits for uh, you know, for, for polluters, I think is the best way to solve uh, both pollution and climate change kind of going forward. Um, we also need to stop subsidizing, like the same government that you want to, uh, you know, that you want to solve this issue is currently subsidizing fossil fuels and uh, it's subsidizing all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, there, there are farming subsidies that, uh, that kind of contribute as well, but all of these subsidies are actively combating the goal of not wanting to be heavily dependent on fossil fuels. So um, I, I say this with some credibility because I've worked in the oil and gas industry here in Houston uh, for most of my career. And I understand that the market is the best way to solve this. And most people don't want uh, the earth to boil over or the seas to rise. And <laughs> most people want to say, if I can make a conscious decision to do the more responsible thing, I'd like to do it. So long as it's not been priced out of, uh, you know, out of, out of reach. All right. I think that <clears throat> we have uh, two questions from Arthur M. Thomas IV. Uh, first question is, healthcare is such a complex issue that many people care about. The government is already very involved. What is your approach to dealing with meeting people's concerns about not going broke if healthcare issues happen in their lives? And I think you kind of touched on that already, but if you I would did. kind of flesh that out. Yeah, I touched on how government right now is uh, largely contributes to the high cost of medicine, but uh, medicine's not the only part of healthcare. There's also the treatment factor. Um, so the, I, I think the best way to lower the cost for everything involved is 
for most people to adopt um, catastrophic insurance coverage only and then use their routine visits, um, you know, paying, paying cash out of that rather than having insurance cover that. Uh, this solves a couple of problems. Well, one, if you want to think about it like your auto insurance, do you, uh, you don't use insurance every time you go to get an oil change or even to fill up at the gas station. That would be silly. And those are just costs of maintaining your, your vehicle. You use your insurance when you have a major breakdown or, or a collision and you want to be, you know, have your vehicle made whole. If you apply that same concept to medicine, you don't have uh, the cost of insurance being drastically out of, you know, out of reach uh, by, by just routine visits. Like say you need to go get a prescription refilled, you have to pay a copay and your insurance pays the majority of that doctor visit where you have to just go in and, you know, something you already know that you need, you just ran out of, you have to go and get that covered. Um, so there, you could have a tracking system to avoid, uh, you know, to avoid medication abuse without having to go see a doctor every single time to get a prescription refilled. Um, and another thing is uh, pricing uh, generally comes down in a competitive market when people actually see the prices and make decisions based on those prices. Right now, the system is you just go to the doctor and you, the insurance pays whatever the price is and you pay your copay. So there's almost no incentive for people to make uh, make uh, conscious consumer decisions on where they spend their money and you know what the what the pricing of it is. If they were doing out of pocket, uh, like I talked about, uh, more towards the uh, oil changer or a uh, gas fill up uh, situation, you you would be able to have cheaper overall coverage because number one, your insurance is cheaper because it's catastrophic only. And number two, your other routine checkup services are cheaper because you're actually, uh, you, you force healthcare providers to compete on the basis of price as well as service offering. So it benefits the consumer to care about price. And right now the government has created a situation where that just isn't a factor. This uh, second question is voter fraud and ballot tampering uh, have become topics around this election, it seems more than other elections. Um, he's curious, uh, what are your thoughts on whether you see this as a problem? And if so, what should be done? Yeah, I, I feel like this is uh, one of those topics that um, particularly the, the Republican Party likes to trot out as, as a giant scapegoat for what they want to do. And what they want to do is really restrict the amount of people who vote in large, especially in large cities, because those demographics tend to vote against them uh, by and large. And so what they're doing is they're pushing their thumb on the scale in an attempt to you know, maintain the power that they are currently uh, enjoying. And I say that um, speaking as a Texan, uh, the Texas GOP has been shameless this year in terms of uh, their attempts to restrict uh, restrict voter participation, and they've they've claimed, you know, oh, we're we're worried about voter suppression, voter suppression, but that doesn't explain why they tried to again sue uh, half of the Texas Libertarian candidates off of the ballot unsuccessfully. Thankfully, uh, it doesn't explain why they have um, why they have restricted. Uh, mail-in ballot options or attempted to restrict mail-in ballot options for people who aren't, uh, aren't over 65 or aren't actually disabled during a pandemic. It, it doesn't explain why they have tried to limit drop-off locations for mailing ballots once those went out, despite their efforts, to only one location per county. Um, what the, all, all of their attempts right now are, are they're just trying to nudge things in their direction so that they can win. It's not about um, preventing fraud. It's about actually cheating in a sense that they're trying to make legal so that they can win. Um, they're, they're not concerned about the integrity of the process, that all they care about is trying to win. And if they were concerned about the integrity of the process, we would have online secure voting by now. But that would be that would allow it to be a lot more accessible to more people, especially younger people. And they don't want those demographics uh, participating as much because they want to stay in power. Uh, the fact that we can pay our taxes online and it's secure enough for the federal government, but we can't vote online is just kind of ridiculous. Uh, you know, you could use, and you could keep open polling locations for people who aren't comfortable with it. I'm not saying we need to remove options from people. I, I just think that we should make it, voting as open and transparently available to everyone as possible. So I was dropping off mail for my uh, work yesterday, no, last week. <clears throat> and um, it was, uh, I had a, a sign on the, um, drive-by mailbox saying uh, ballot location, you know, mail off. And there was a, a gentleman there that was uh, manning it, the, the drop-off. Uh, do you know what that's about? Is that um, if I were there to drop off a vote, would he be the person to like 
check to make sure I was who I said I was? Or do you know why that person was there? Uh, that is not, I mean, there, there are different voting rules uh, for different municipalities all over the country. I'm not sure if that was a legitimate one or if that was bogus. Uh, I would be a little hesitant though, because that, um, if it weren't at an official polling location listed on my local county's, uh, you know, uh, district judge's website, then I would not leave my vote there <laughs> because I would worry it would either not be counted or manipulated in a way that, uh, that went against what I, what I believed in and what I wanted to support. Uh, so we, the only way to combat that is to make sure that we're informed voters. So, uh, don't, it, don't, don't, um, be talked into something, do your research on a, on a legitimate government website, find out where their actual locations are and, and drop them off that way. Cause otherwise, yeah, otherwise the system is ripe for abusive, uh, those who would, uh, who, you know, who would, would trick people in, in an attempt to get gain political advantage. Another question. Um, I have seen uh, uh, at least two people on my Facebook feed uh, post pictures of them having received mail-in ballots or voter registration cards for people who were not them. And so they were um, attributing that to, wow, if I can receive someone else's voter registration card or mail-in ballot, it was one of the two then this is how easily uh, you know, people can manipulate the system. Or if we were to go to where we were accepting mail-in ballots, you know, what's to keep someone else from voting in my place, that kind of thing. So I mean, yeah. I, I can see what you're saying, like it would be better to go to some type of secure online voting to prevent that from happening to begin with. But um, do you, I guess it goes back to the guy's question, if you thought it was a problem. Uh, I, I think that the actual cases that are that are, that turn out for voter fraud are statistics statistically negligible um, in in almost every election. I've I've never seen an election close enough where they've said, okay, well, there was suspicion of a hundred thousand cases of voter fraud, and that turns the tide of this election. No, and that that doesn't happen. And you do see cases, uh, you know, if if they're even um, founded. Uh, there'll be a handful of cases in, you know, an area and, and it won't ultimately affect it. So um, I, I think that the logic of, of trying to diminish uh, people's access on that is, it's not one that's really founded in, in statistical reality. So uh, it's, it, it's, it's definitely used though to limit who can participate and that evidence has, has been proven. And, uh, you know, again, my preference is secure Obviously, I don't want to encourage fraud. I definitely encourage you, if you receive the wrong ballot, to immediately report that and, and get that corrected, you know, as, as the moral thing to do. But, um, you know, this, this uh, it, it's, it's essentially crying wolf. And what it does is it, it calls into question the legitimacy of the process. And it's being used, as, again, as an excuse to limit people's options. So that's, that's it's just not a, a valid concern as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Uh, so after the election uh, tomorrow, <clears throat> um, so your your life could go one of two ways. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> what that looks like for for Elliot? Well, um, I, I'm I'm really glad that the election tomorrow. This has been a very active campaign that I've run, and I am really looking forward to taking some downtime, um, <laughs> whether that's between. Uh, inauguration day in, uh, next year or <laughs> whether that's just the election cycles over and I get to relax for a minute. Uh, but what it looks like for me is uh, putting my two weeks notice in <laughs> with my job and uh, doing some house hunting in Washington DC. Uh, so that that would be a, a drastic uh, a change from Houston and I, I guess I'd have to move there during the DC winter which uh, it doesn't really snow here in Houston so that's that's uh, that'll be a, uh, a little uh, <laughs> a, a bit of a change. Um, I'll also have to hire a, a staff to help support support me both here locally in Houston so that uh, we can have accountability to the constituents of uh, Texas' second district and, and you know in the surrounding Houston area and also staff in DC to help me uh, help me craft the language on the bills that I plan to introduce and uh, help me vet the ones that I will have to decide to support or oppose. Um, I'm one of those rare people who does not vote based on partisan lines. Uh, 
I want to make sure that I read everything thoroughly before I, I commit to it. And, you know, you have to have a, a, a competent and reliable staff in order to do that because some of these bills, you, they are thousands of pages long and you get a day to read them. And there's no way that you can have any full understanding of that without having a, you know, a competent team behind you to support you. Um, I'll also have to begin the process of being a, an extreme minority in Congress. And that means I will have to caucus on an issue by issue basis with the Democrats and Republicans uh, if, I, if I ever want to get anything. And they'll have, to, they'll have to court me on an issue by issue basis if they want to help push the needle on close votes for them, themselves. So I feel like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, an amazing opportunity uh, to, you know, to, to have libertarians uh, represent, uh, you, you know, represent the people in Congress, because the whole point of Congress is to be representative of the people. And right now we have uh, parties that make up 40% of the electorate controlling 98% of the, of the votes. And it's just a, it's, it's a misrepresentation in its present form. And um, if, <clears throat> pardon me. So, and then if it goes the other way, um, does life go on as normal and you uh, consider running again? Uh, I have been asked multiple times this question, and uh, I'm going to get through this election and make my decision then. I, I might decide to run again because I have built up uh, a lot of momentum, more so than any previous libertarian in this race. Uh, I might decide to focus on a different race entirely where I can uh, get some more traction. I think um, I would, uh, if I were running in a two-person race that was not contested by a, uh, you know, by a Democrat and a Republican, I have a, a clear path to victory there. Uh, right now, I've, um, I, I, I think the lowest threshold I need in order to win is 34% in a three-way race. And uh, that's something I've been heavily pushing for. I've been trying to activate the, uh, you know, the apathetic voters, like I mentioned earlier, who are registered to vote, but just don't. Uh, I've, I've been reaching across and, um, you know, ultimately it comes down to what the effect of this election is. If I make a huge splash and I take a big bite out of, uh, out of the percentage that, that no libertarian in this race has done before, then I, I kind of feel obligated to keep, uh, you know, to keep at it because congressional elections are every two years. So I'd probably take a couple months off and then <laughs> be back on the uh, campaign trail. Uh, so it, it really just depends on how things turn out, to be honest. Um, I, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the results and, uh, and you know, seeing what, what the, uh, you know, what kind of out, out, um, outcome all of this effort has uh, yielded. Well, uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but um, I am on Ballotpedia. <laughs> it says uh, Scheffler Nall ran in the 2012 election for Texas House of Representatives, District 3. Uh, Scheffler Nall ran unopposed in the May 29th primary election and would have been challenged by Cecil Bell Jr. in the general election, which took place on November 6th, 2012. However, Scheffler Nall no longer appears on the Libertarian Party's official list of candidates. Um, that was because, um, you know, when I was getting notifications from the Libertarian Party, uh, I was like, why not me? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I was thinking um, if it's supposed to be representative of the people, here I was, um, you know, a working uh, mother and, you know, why not <laughs> have my voice, you know, representative of the people, you know, in that district. Um, however, I was the only libertarian uh, in my house and I didn't have a lot of support in, even in my own family. And so I went ahead and uh, decided uh, I withdrew from uh, the election. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad I did. I like things were happening. I, um, was dealing with a lot of uh, grief in my uh, life. I had lost a brother and then That's I fun. had some uh, postpartum depression with my, my daughter. And so it was um, very challenging time. And so it, it just didn't work. And I'm, I'm glad now that it didn't happen. Um, but, you know, I also think I, would I have been up to the task of all of the you know, the poo slinging, you know, because I was, I was also getting a little freaked out because people were like digging up dirt and, you know, just like every person, you know, I'm not perfect. And I'm sure there's something that someone could 
you know, dig up and, th and throw at me. But I was like, if I didn't feel like I had the support, you know, at home, and then um, I, I just didn't feel, and I still don't feel like I express myself verbally very well. And I really uh, appreciate that about you. I can see that you are very smooth. <laughs> like You know the issues down pat and you're able to express yourself very well. And so I, uh, as a libertarian, I am really happy to have you as a candidate so that I can vote for you tomorrow. Uh, so thank you for all of your effort and time. And I know that it, it does take a lot. So, um, and I want to thank, I guess, your wife. Uh, are you married or is it your uh, girlfriend? I, we're engaged, actually. Okay, well, congratulations. Thank so, you. We're, we're not doing any wedding planning until after the election, so that's another thing I'm looking forward to doing. Yes, <laughs> we I bet she is too, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I want to say thanks to her, your unseen, you know, rather kind of behind-the-scenes partner there, because uh, I know it, it's not just the person that's running, oh, but it's totally their, entire, their entire support system. So... Uh, Thanks for uh, you know representing us, and I hope you get a chance to do that uh, in Washington for us. Well, thank you so much for for saying that. And as someone who has uh, initiated a, a a campaign in the past, you know it it is a there's so much to do. There's so many people to respond to. There's so much you feel like you should be doing when you when you're not, uh, and it, it it is a it is a full time job in itself just running a, a campaign and. I absolutely could not do that without the support of, of uh, you know, my fiance Liz. She's she's been an absolute rock. She uh, she has really good ideas. Uh, her um, her profession is marketing, so she's helped me a lot uh, with tweaking some of my messaging and in ways that aren't just like, hey, most people don't care about when you shout audit the Fed, but if you say, hey, your dollars are worth less because of government policy, that means when you're saving money, you're losing money. Um, people you know, can pay more attention to that. Uh, so yeah, I, again, could not have done it without her. And I am really looking forward to seeing the incredible successes that uh, the Libertarians going, uh, party is going to have tomorrow. Uh, right now we have, uh, there's a candidate running in Wyoming who has a really good shot of winning in a two-way race. There's another one uh, running for Senate in Arkansas who is just kicking ass. Uh, there's a governor candidate in Indiana who is doing amazing as well. I mean, all of these are winnable, very winnable competitive races. And I'm super excited to see how they turn out. Um, as, uh, as again, like just talking about this is getting me more excited again and making me feel like I can't not run again. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, this is this is a cause that I really care about. And uh, it it means a lot to be able to have the opportunity to do this. If you are, uh, if you're interested in, if you're hearing this and you're interested in following me, um, I have a uh, very active Facebook and Twitter presence uh, on Facebook. It's just Sherman for Congress, which is uh, S-C-H-E-I-R-M-A-N is how you spell my last name. And on Twitter, it's at Vote Sherman. So again, S-C-H-E-I-R-M-A-N. You can find me on either one of those spots, or you can check out my uh, issues and, and campaign updates at shermanforcongress.com. Perfect. That was the that was the next thing. You're running my podcast for me. But <laughs> how can people find out more about you and follow what you're making in your own sandbox? So there, there you have it. And I'll include that in the show notes. That uh, it'll make it easier for people to just click on it. And um, okay. I, I looked at your Facebook page and I saw several of the videos, and I think that um, I liked it because it kind of clarified. Um, you know, your stance on certain issues. And um, I don't know, I just, it reinforced my confidence in voting for you. Uh, so I, I, so much. <laughs> I liked the video. I love hearing feedback. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, this last segment, um, I love how in the Lifestylist podcast, Luke Story ends off his podcasts asking his guests this question. Who have been three teachers or teachings in your life that you might share with our audience that they could go research and also learn from? Okay, well, um, I think the first person to kind of open my mind to this whole concept was, uh, was probably Ron Paul. Um, he was kind of iconic in his stance for liberty and his unapologetic um, opposition to, uh, you know, federal control. And that was something that 
nobody was really talking about in the late two, uh, 2000s there and uh, the aughts, I guess you call them. And yeah, that, that opened up a lot. So much so that I, I uh, kind of held my nose in 2012 and went as a delegate to the Texas GOP convention to help uh, nominate him as a candidate for president back when he was running in the 2012 election. So um, yeah, he really inspired me a lot. Uh, since discovering him, um, I would say uh, Frederic Bastiat, uh, he's an, uh, an author. He wrote a book called The Law, which is really good at simplifying and explaining things that um, that are just an, an, an understandable, tan, uh, tangible uh, approach that people who don't really understand libertarianism and you know as, as deeply as you would, someone like me at this point does can get. Um, one of one of his quotes that that will always stick with me is, um, people confuse opposition to the government with doing something as opposition to that thing happening itself, and whereas you can say I don't want the government to you know, to buy my food for me, you, you know, people who disagree with you would say, well, that means you don't want people to have food. And that's just not the case. It's no, I don't want the government to do it because it's bad and it makes mistakes and it hurts people and it removes choice. I want people to have food and I want to help them have food. <laughs> I just don't want the government to force it. Um, so that was a really good uh, book, I think, that helps kind of turn the way of thinking uh, on really in my brain uh, when it comes to uh, you know, freedom as a solution for things. So if you're listening to this, uh, it's a it's a good read. It's again, it's called The Law by Frederic Bastiat. And I would say um, probably my present uh, best role model is as Representative Justin Amash. He is the only uh, Libertarian Party uh, congressman uh, that is serving right now to, in, you know, in office. He, uh, he was elected, uh, I, I believe, four terms as a, as a Republican, but the, the Trump uh, just Trumpism that took over the GOP made him say, I can't be associated with this. This is bad. And, you know, America needs better than this. And he, so he said, look, these are, these are already my principles anyway. I am a libertarian. I am now a member of the Libertarian Party. And his, uh, he uh, is also unique in his role as a congressman in that he, he provides an explanation of every single vote that he, that he makes, that he casts in his role. He says, this is the situation, this is why I support it, this is, or this is a situation and why I don't support it. And even if it sounds like it is a, you know, like uh, 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 if, if the bill is named in a way that sounds favorable that he might like, he'll say, I went through it, I read it, I found a writer in here that is totally unacceptable and I can't support this or voting for this. Um, as an example, the, uh, sorry to ramble here, but this is kind of a big important point. Uh, Congress passed the NDAA, uh, which author, uh, which is basically the authorization to, for ongoing military spending uh, for next year. And that, you know, most people would say it's patriotic, you know, vote for the military so the troops have their jobs and their money and all this stuff. But hidden within that was a little uh, writer and a rule that said that veterans, people who are no longer active military, but veterans can be targeted and have their guns taken from them with no cause other than some government agent saying, hey, I think maybe they're a threat. This is, there's no oh crimes have been, no yes, crimes when, have been committed. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, whenever I get these um, flyers in the mail and it says that so-and-so voted against this or that, um, I take it that, you know, even though as bad as that sounds, what else was in that bill that made mm -hmm. them say no to that? And so, you know, you just have to like think about like what else could have been in that bill that they voted against something that was so obviously, you know, nice or good. Mm -hmm. And and honestly, the only way to get to fix that problem is to have bills be, you know, individual topics be voted on on their individual merit. And that's that's the only way to fix this. As long as you can add a poison pill writer or or a you know a sweetheart deal for someone, if you can just buy their support, you're going to have ongoing corruption and problems with, you know, with the entire process. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You can, no, if you. No, that's okay. That's that. That was the idea I was getting out. Is essentially veterans were able to be targeted to have their guns taken away from them. Like I can't imagine a less deserving group of people for the government to target and remove their rights than veterans. It's just it's it's unconscionable. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk, um, Elliot. I've, I I I like I said. I feel confident from having talked with you and everything. Uh, that you're a great libertarian candidate. Uh, what would you, if you were asked what your um, 
what's the word? Uh, what are your your qualities that make you qualify? What are your qualifications for running for this particular office? Uh, very good question. Uh, so my my professional career is 13 years of experience in supply chain project management. Uh, and that means that I have a professional expertise in, uh, you know, in delivering projects on time and under budget. And that's kind of the opposite of the way the government does things. And I think that, uh, you know, that we could use a little bit more uh, diversity in terms of professional expertise uh, when it comes to lawmaking. Like right now, it's full of lawyers and and they're really good at making things either easy, either easy to pass or difficult to understand based on what they want to accomplish. And uh, we need people who are honest and straightforward and have the ability to solve problems and have that as their actual focus. Uh, one thing that I noticed in the debate uh, that I had with my two opponents, which you can find the video for that on either my Facebook or YouTube channel, is that they just wanted to bicker over who was lying and who was wrong. And I was the only one in that who was actually talking about how to solve problems. And when you have people who actually want to solve problems, all of this hyper-partisanship goes away. Uh, the idea is to have problems that are solved for everyone involved, not just special interest groups. So that's, uh, that's, that's a, definitely a unique qualifier that I have that I wish more candidates for office would have no matter what party they're in. I think more people, um, I think there, there are more libertarians out there than, than they know. I think people who are, you know, if they were to look at the libertarian platform would be like, oh, wow, this is actually what I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> but they just haven't been presented with that because they feel like it's either one or the other. I know these right. two and, options. And, even, and, and there and is a third option. Heard, yeah, and even those who have heard of it are constantly told, like we talked about in the beginning of this, uh, of this conversation, they're told that it's a wasted vote or that they can never win. And that, that just defeats them in their own mind before they even cast a vote. It's very, it's, it's something that we have to overcome and we have to help people realize that, you know, if you want things to get better, you have to vote differently. Yeah, so again, it goes back to, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that article because it prompted me to try and reach out to you mm -hmm. so that we can give people like the permission slip, you know, whereas I felt like maybe that article was kind of trying to take away their power, their sovereignty and replace it with fear, you know, mm -hmm. I want uh, this conversation to empower people to make their own decision to reclaim their sovereignty and, and vote what, you know, for the future that they want to see. Um, so exactly that, that effort is not going to happen unless you take the action to change it. Um, I, we, we have to combat the, the bullying that uh, goes towards uh, third party voters. You know, we, <laughs> they, they don't want our voices to be heard and that's not what voting should be about. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. I uh, happened to see on your Facebook page that you've been on a couple of other podcasts and yes, it kind of looked like they had their game together. Like, and, and so I felt like, Oh my gosh. Um, but <laughs> I just give, you know, I don't feel like I ha I'm very polished with this quite yet, but I just want to thank you for the opportunity for, uh, allowing me to do my thing here on Sheffy's Sandbox podcast and uh, to give it, you know, my April flavor because- well, don't, don't sell yourself short, this is great. And it's authentic, which is, which is a great presentation. And that's a great basis for, for a podcast. Well, thank you, Elliot, so much for joining me in Sheffy's Sandbox. And listeners, please vote. Vote Libertarian, vote Democratic, vote Green Party, vote Republican. I just encourage you to vote from a place of love, empowerment, personal sovereignty, and not from a place of fear or hate of the, quote, other. We're in this together, and this idea of separation is really an illusion. I'll see you all on the other side of November 3rd. Much love to you all. <laughs>